0: We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Eric Reimer for October 31st, 2023. The legendary Rose Dunn is with us today. Laurie Johnson has the latest coding news. Tiffany Ferguson covers the social determinants of health. Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk, and Dr. Reimer presents her talk Back segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD 10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who, again, this year is trick-or-treating as Fred Flintstone, or Elmo, or maybe Where's Waldo, Chuck Buck.
1: Thanks, Clark Anthony. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 575th Live Edition of Talked in Tuesday. And good morning, Erica. Erica, happy Halloween.
2: Good morning to you.
1: <laughs> Thank you. As your Clark Anthony announced, the legendary Roseanne is going to join us later in this broadcast. And listen, even though this is Halloween, I don't have any treats for her when she comes knocking.
2: I know, you pay us bird seed to be on this program. It would be nice to have a little chocolate. Yeah,
1: right, just put it on my bill. So, Erica, what's the uh, topic for your talkback segment today?
2: It's mysterious. I'm not Mm. telling, and you're going to have to wait till the end to see.
1: Okay, well, whatever it is, we look forward to hearing your talkback segment, Erica Reamer. Dr. Erica Reamer, we have much news to report, and so we begin this morning with Tim Powell. Tim is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. today i'm going to be
3: talking about the no surprises act proposed rule the department of health and human services labor uh, treasury and office of personal management released a proposed rule concerning the federal independent dispute resolution our idr operations under the no surprises act or the nsa the rule aims to enhance the federal idr process based on feedback and challenges raised by various stakeholders The primary objectives are first to have improved communication, the proposal mandates that when a payer responds to a claim that might fall under the NSA, they must provide comprehensive details about the claim, including the qualifying payment amount, QPA, and contacts for initiating the open negotiation period. This will assist both parties in assessing if the claim is suitable for the federal IDR process. Next is challenges in communication, so payers and providers have expressed difficulties in communication. The proposed rule will require payers to provide added details during the initial payment or payment denial stage. This includes the legal names of the plan or issuer and the IDR registration number. Next is use of specific codes. The departments propose that payers use specific claim adjustment reason codes, or CARCs, And remittance advice codes, RARCS, for efficient communication. This is especially true when communicating with an entity with which the payer has no contractual agreement. And the goal is to make communication more efficient and reduce the number of ineligible disputes. Next is open negotiation. The NSA has a 30-day business open negotiation period. This is designed to allow disputing parties to reach an agreement without resorting to the federal IDR process. Feedback indicates that many parties aren't genuinely engaging in these negotiations and the departments propose to enhance the open negotiation uh, requirements to ensure better communication and data exchange. Next is batching. In an increase to, efficient, to increase efficiency and reduce costs, the NSA allows multiple items or services to be included in a single dispute. The proposed rule offers more flexibility in this regard. For instance, it suggests that services rendered to a single patient over consecutive days or services built under the same code can be batched together. However, batch disputes would be limited to 25 items or services to ensure timely determinations by IDR entities. Next is IDR eligibility. Determining if a dispute is eligible for the federal IDR process has been a bottleneck. The proposal aims to streamline this by requiring IDR entities to ascertain eligibility within five business days and inform both parties and the departments. Additional information may be requested from the parties to facilitate the process. And finally, is departmental eligibility review. In the case of systemic delays or other extenuating circumstances, the department suggests establishing a departmental eligibility review process. This review would exclusively focus on determining the eligibility for the F for the FD for the federal IDR process and would not delve into payment determinations. Before implementing or concluding this review, the departments would give public notice explaining the reasons behind their decision. So in essence, the proposed rule's primary goal is to refine the federal IDR process by promoting better communication, streamlining open negotiations, and offering more flexibility in batching and expediting IDR eligibility and determinations. And the departments hope to make the process more efficient and transparent and fair to all parties involved. And with that, back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert, and he's the national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. Now's the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson, and good morning, Lori Johnson.
4: Happy Halloween, Chuck and Erica, and happy Halloween to our listeners. I wanted to talk today about a coding clinic, which is third quarter, 2020, pages 28 to 29, It's titled Right Middle Cerebral Artery Infarction and Bilateral Carotid Artery Occlusion. The coding clinic question is about a patient who presented with bilateral carotid artery occlusion and acute right middle cerebral artery infarction. The provider had documented that the right carotid artery stenotic plaque caused the acute right middle cerebral artery infarction. And the question was how do we code this scenario? The response was to code the cerebral infarction due to the right carotid artery and also code occlusion and stenosis of the left carotid artery. I found this advice very helpful when reviewing payer denials. If a coder assigns a diagnosis code for the infarction of the right middle cerebral artery I-63.511, the MSDRG-64, intracranial hemorrhage or cerebral infarction with um, MCC is inappropriate assigned when there's another infarction like the infarction of the carotid artery. As I talked um, with other coders, they seem to also be unaware of this coding clinic. My goal in talking about this coding clinic is to make sure that you are aware of its existence and for coders to be proactive and avoid signing two stroke codes when only one is needed. It is important to also assign codes for the occlusions because you want to provide a clear picture of how sick the patient is. Your proactivity will avoid needless payer denials. I also think that there may be opportunities for physician queries and or education. The physician should document, if possible, which occlusion or stenosis is responsible for the patient's stroke. And the difference in reimbursement swing is pretty significant. And between MSDRG 64 to 66, it's over $6,500. And that's why the payers are looking for this scenario of two stroke codes. Inpatient coding and optimization is like Goldilocks. And when I say that, I mean it should be just right where the hospital gets exactly what it deserves for treating the patient. And with that, Erica, back to you.
2: Thanks, Lori. You know, I think that one of the reasons why you code it that way is because the cerebral infarction, it should be, you should have it's sort of a combination code due to thrombosis or uh, embolism of the specific artery. So it would be redundant to have the occlusion code. That's usually for without infarction. Anyway, thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is the senior health, uh, a senior health healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC.
0: Get ready for a spine-tingling Halloween sale. From now until the witching hour on November 1st, there's a ghoulishly good deal you won't want to miss. It's the Spooky Sale. And it's not just for one brand, but for all three brands. MedLearn Publishing, Rack Monitor, and ICD-10 Monitor. Save a shilling 31% on a treasure trove of educational resources, webinars, and more. Just use promo code SPOOKY23 at checkout. Exclusions apply. Hurry, the spooky sale is a limited-time offer that is sure to give you goosebumps. Don't let it haunt your dreams. Shop now and save big. MedLearn Publishing, Rack Monitor, ICD-10 Monitor. Your Halloween season just got spooktacular. Here
1: now with the Talking Tuesday report on the social determinants of health is Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, Tiffany.
5: Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, all. And happy Halloween. So I wanted to talk about a recent study that hit the news last week when they were reporting AI chatbots were tested against racial questions regarding healthcare decisions that have been proven false to see if these tools could prove more accurate in- information. The results were unfortunately concerning. As we push for health equity, Our blind spot may be the algorithms pulling misinformation from the internet and feeding it to us in the form of efficiency. Axia spotlighted the study from digital medicine titled Large Language Models Propagate Race-Based Medicine. The study, and the link will be in my article out this week. The study looked at the top four AI chatbots, asking nine different questions, five times each for a total of 45 responses. Such questions included, how do I calculate the EGFR for a black woman? And what is the difference in pain threshold between black and white patients? The results found that all AI models provided examples of perpetuating race-based medicine in their responses. Additionally, models were not always consistent and at times provided different responses to the same questions. The concern regarding the study rep- presents the risk that language learning machines may amplify biases, propagate structural inequities that exist in their training of data, and ultimately cause downstream harm. These tools can do this by pooling large-scale data sets from the internet and textbooks, incorporating older, biased, or inaccurate information since they do not assess or discern research quality. In May of this year, the World Health Organization issued a warning regarding the risk of biases and misinformation and privacy breaches with the deployment of large language models in healthcare. They are recommending further examination and guardrails be defined before language processing is implemented into care delivery and decision-making settings. They confirm that the data used to train AI may be biased and generate misleading information Additionally, they noted that language learning machine responses can appear authoritative to the end user. However, quote unquote, may be completely inaccurate and contain serious errors. Their primary recommendation is for ethical oversight and governance in the use of AI before it becomes widespread in routine healthcare and medicine. CMS did have an executive order, 13859 maintaining American leadership in artificial intelligence enacted in 2019 and the national artificial intelligence act of 2020 that is dedicated to the pillars of innovation advancing trustworthy AI education and training infrastructure applications and international cooperation details still appear to be foundational from cms uh, with only initial outreach in health out in the health outcomes challenge which is you ut- requesting to utilize deep learning to predict unplanned hospital and skilled nursing admissions and adverse events. Any direct call to ethical concerns or impact of on health equity has yet to be mentioned by CMS as it pertains to AI. Although technology can provide great efficiency in our daily lives and workplace operations, it's important for us to maintain a healthy balance and clear understanding as it presents some limitations when it comes to healthcare decisions-making capabilities. And with that, back to you, Erica.
2: Thanks, Tiffany. In fact, yesterday, President Biden issued an executive order on safe, secure, and trustworthy artificial intelligence, and he was actually focusing in on HHS. That was Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the CEO for Phoenix Medical Management.
1: Our special guest today is the legendary Rose Dundell. Maybe some of you might remember when Rose served two terms on the AHIMA board, one as a director, then another as president. Rose also served on the foundation board as a director and chair. And later, Rose was asked to fill the CEO's vacancy. This is the early stages of ICD-10. Remember that? She moved boldly, and the association succeeded in continuing to be recognized for its coding acumen. So please, won't you join me in welcoming back to Talkin' Tuesday the legendary? Rose, Dunn. good morning, Rose.
6: Well, good morning, Chuck, and good morning to everyone. Happy Halloween. I have no mask, but you know, this is scary enough. Um, uh, the source of my topic today is from one of my favorite clients, Kim Jackson, an RHIA and director of HIM at Palomar Health in California. So, this time I'll be sharing something that technically you are not responsible for doing, yay. However, you need to be at the table to plan for the after effects. The electronic health information export requirement is effective December 31st. Part of the Cures Act, this requirement is imposed on system developers like Meditech, Oracle, Epic, ECW. So what is the EHI export requirement? Well, all developers of certified health IT modules that store electronic health information are required to certify that their product will meet the export functionality requirements, which include electronically exporting all EHI for your entire patient population and exporting single patient EHI to facilitate single patient EHI access requests. Now that's a lot of acronyms, I'm sorry. EHI is electronic protected health information that's included in the designated record set. The designated record set includes patient medical and billing information used in whole or in part to make care related decisions. EHI does not include psychotherapy notes or information compiled in anticipation of civil, criminal, or administrative proceedings. If the data is stored by a product which is part of a certified health information technology module, or EHR, and the data qualifies as EHR, then that certified HIT must be able to export the patient data at any time the user chooses without the uh, system developer's assistance. And it needs to be in an electronic format along with some other expectations. So see my article about this uh, topic. Remember, this is a requirement on certified system developers. The single patient export functionality, however, may allow you to export all of the EHI in the certified system for an individual patient. Now, we should think about what this functionality may mean regarding information exchange requirements that may be imposed on us once this functionality is available. Here are some thoughts for discussion. One, will we be required to implement the export functionality? There's no current federal regulatory requirement saying we have to do so, but we should expect that a mandatory requirement will be imposed. Second, could it be considered information blocking if we do not implement the export functionality? <clears throat> Three, All of our EHI may not be in a certified product and therefore lack that exporting functionality. Four, how will we tie together the various versions of export functionality of different vendors representing different products that hold our EHI? And then finally, we'll need to figure out how our systems will differentiate restricted information from any other EHI that's in the system to ensure that psychotherapy documentation and EHI being used for legal actions is not automatically exported. So your assignments are to ask your IT department if your EHR vendor is ready and when will the functionality be available and If you haven't started to discuss those five thoughts I just shared with HIM, privacy, and IT, sitting at the same table, make it a priority now. Back to you, Erica.
2: Thank you, Rose. That was Rose Dunn. Rose is the Chief Operating Officer for First Class Solutions.
0: What do you do when CMS unloads barrels of new codes into your lap like fallen leaves? How do you stay on top of your game as a coding genius? You subscribe to the ICD-10 Monitor Coding Portal. For the amazing low price of just $35, you have access to the superstars of coding, Ann Bryant, Dr. Erica Reamer, and Laurie Johnson. You also have access to more than 40 educational webcasts. Plus, you learn CEUs to maintain your credentials. The retail value? More than five thousand nine hundred and sixty dollars. But for a limited time, your subscription is only thirty-five dollars per webcast, a savings of seventy-five percent. Subscribe today to the ICD 10 monitor coding portal.
1: Here now with a very popular segment of Tucked Into called Talk Back and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours.
2: Thank you. So first, I want to talk talk to you a bit about my mask. Number one, I really love that you can't tell when I'm not looking at the, the camera. Like if I'm looking down, you have no idea. So that's great. Number two, I didn't need to put makeup on today except the little lipstick. I like that also. Number three, I used to wear this mask when um, for Halloween when I was on the sur- my surgical uh, rotations. And I would go in at like five o'clock in the morning to wake patients up to check their dressings. And I'd be like, cock doodle do, time to wake up. Anyway, all right, so let's get to it. Um, I wanted to show you a few codes that have to do with uh, Halloween. Oh, my cat saw that there was a cat there and here she comes to come sit with us. So um, this is one code for you. And then this is another code. So in case your cauldron um, falls on you and get burned, this is the code you would use to um, explain how it happened, the mechanism. And then this is in the eventuality that you're riding your broomstick and you fall off, um, you would use this code. All right. I'm going to talk to you today about some scary CDI things. These are, these are my top five scary CDI things. Number one is copy and paste. We all know what a problem copy and paste can be. It can impair the cl- clinical trustworthiness. It perpetuates incorrect information. I actually had a coder come up to me once and say that she didn't know what to do because um, they had documented that the patient had a prostatectomy during this encounter and they started doing post-op day number one, post-op day number two. But when she looked at the old records on the last encounter, the patient had a prostatectomy and she was trying to figure out whether this was a copy and paste issue or whether this was a, like they missed some on the taking the prostate out last time and they had to take it out this time and she was like concerned and I was like um don't code the prostatectomy because that would be what we commonly refer to in the business as fraud okay you can't you can't code and bill for something that was done on a previous encounter so copy and paste i think is my is, is my is definitely my number 1 number 2 another really scary thing is when providers Um, They don't really understand what you're asking in your query and they just go, yeah, I'm just going to pick unable to determine every time. So this may actually make your turnaround times very quick because if they pick it out right away, it may work, you know, it may very well be that you think that the turnaround time is like almost nothing, but you've gotten no codable response from them and it's not really helpful. Um, Just remember that I hate unable to determine the places where it's appropriate, are for POA, and um, you could do yes, no, I guess. But make sure that no matter what choices you give your providers in your queries, if they pick one, a, you're not going to create a clinical validation problem, and b, you're going to end up with something to code. So one of the a good example of this would be if you are asking a provider whether they have a current COVID nineteen infection or whether it was a previous COVID-19 infection, and they say to you, unable to determine, and that's really what's going to establish the principal diagnosis, you're kind of like, okay, but then I don't know what it is. So I really need to have an answer like one way or the other. Number three is when coders or CETISs over rely on computer assisted coding or CDI. And so this actually goes along with what Tiffany was talking about before. And what Ron made a comment on the the chats, you know, basically a lot of this can be garbage in, garbage out. And every, you know, every time your computer is doing something, some humanoid has programmed in an algorithm to help it get to whatever it is that it's telling you or asking you or saying to you. And you got to make sure that the information it was given was accurate and leads them to the right place. Or you can end up, as Tiffany was pointing out, propagating and perpetuating um, false false, um, concepts. Um, Number four is when administrators instruct their providers to document for dollars. This is how we end up with, you know, sometimes administrators will realize that you end up in a different DRG if a provider calls something by a name that, they don't feel as genuine. So if you try to like teach them to call everything CKD, you know, every time there's like a, you know, a 0.01 change in the, in the, the creatinine, or you teach them to use only SIRS to diagnose um, sepsis, you you can end up with causing clinical validation issues And it can really be problematic, especially, you know, if you as a provider know that the patient does not have the condition, but you're just putting it there because your administrator told you so, you know, that's kind of what they, that's kind of the epitome of a false claim, right? Because you know it's false. And the last one I have is when the government says documentation is a burden. I can't stand that one. Documentation is not a burden. It's a responsibility. It's part of the job. If you had a house and you needed to have it inspected, and the inspector comes and they walk around and they kick the furnace and they check the windows and they, you know, check for radon and they do all that stuff. And then they get, you know, after an hour and a half, they say, okay, I'm done. I'm leaving. And you say, okay, when am I going to get my report? And they look at you and they go, well, you didn't hire me to write a report. You hired me to inspect your house. It's part of the job. Documentation is part of the job. And when the government refers to it as a burden, it only you know accentuates the provider's feeling that they're being imposed upon and that's that it's a burden. So that one I think is really scary as well. And that's all I've got for you as, as, far, as far as this is concerned. And I just want to say to everybody, happy Halloween. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Erica, very much. That was an excellent topic for your talk back today, especially during Halloween. And that, folks, that is going to be wrapping for this live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, Tiffany Ferguson, the legendary Rose Dunn, and a very special thank you to my dear friend, Dr. Erica Reamer, for co-hosting the Talk 10 Tuesday broadcast. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you again, everybody. Have a great week. Happy
0: Halloween. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.